My name is Matt, and I'm a workaholic. I tell you that this morning not as some sort of badge of honor. I tell you that this morning as a confession. I'd ask that you would hear it. I work a lot, and when I'm not working, I'll be really frank with you, I'm thinking about the tasks in my work. I fool myself sometimes into thinking, well, I'm, I'm doing the ministry, right? So when do you ever punch out on God's work and, and struggle as a younger pastor to find a rhythm of sustainability and wholeness and, and do that well? And I admit to you this morning, I'm not doing that well. I, uh, when I'm home, I'm often not fully present with my family. Um, I'm in a constant state of hurry, always rushing. Even when I have nowhere directly to be, I'm just rushing in the thing I'm doing. And things need to change about the way and in the way I approach my work and my daily and weekly routine. This is no one's fault, by the way, but mine. Our elders are exceptional. They're always asking me how I'm going to find margin. Um, they're, they're doing things... Um, that will help me sustain uh, my ministry. My wife is exceptional, and she's gracious, and yet uh, it's no fault but my own that I'm not fully engaged when I'm home a lot of the time. I need to own that. I have great accountability brothers that I meet with regularly, and one of the routine conversations we have is, so where are you finding a little bit of time to just be? And I think about some opportunity I might have three weeks from that point to fit something in. That doesn't seem to happen. So I want to apologize from the get-go to you this morning, Central, because here I am this morning preaching to you on part one of two on rest. And I am approaching it nothing like the Apostle Paul could approach his ministry when he said, follow me as I follow Christ. I can't do that this morning. I want you to know that this morning I'm, I'm just preaching to myself, but I actually am convinced that a lot of you in the room are essentially in the same boat, and so therefore my preaching to myself may be somewhat helpful to you. So we're going to lean into Jesus and hear the things that he says that can reorient our lives when we live in this state of being. So let me show you. Let me help you figure out if you are worn out, tired, burning the candle at both ends, too addicted to your work, and not finding enough margin in your life. Ruth Haley Barton wrote an exceptional book called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, and in it she gives 10 signs that you're functioning beyond human limitation. You're just, you're, you're, you're functioning in a way that is not sustainable and ultimately is going to go bad. And here's some of the, here's some of the revealing signs that, that you're living beyond human limitations. First, irritability. Anybody? Everybody? <laughs> On edge. You lose your temper way too easily because you're irritable. Second, hypersensitivity. Get mad or hurt feelings just way too easily. There's some little slight, and it is this big thing. How could you? Restlessness. When you do stop to rest, you can't relax. 
can't fall asleep. Maybe you're fidgety. For me, sometimes, I, I, unbeknownst to me, I'm sitting on the couch or at a table and my legs are crossed and I'm just kind of like shaking one foot, you know? You just do that, right? Not realizing it's shaking, you know, the majority of the room. And sometimes my wife Emily just reach across and just hold my knee and just push down on it. Just stop, man. <laughs> Compulsive overworking. So you work a lot. And then things get a little bit mixed up and you're tired and you're restless and all of the above things are happening. So you, oh wait, what do you do? Makes no sense, but you just compulsively overwork. You keep working. You just keep this unsustainable rhythm going because it's become the normal. It's just this compulsive overworking. Five, emotional numbness, right? So you get to the point where you don't have the emotional capacity for typical human emotions such as empathy. There's a circumstance where you should be empathetic to somebody and you don't feel it at all. There's an emotional numbness. Six, escapist behaviors. We can talk about all the classic addictions of alcohol and drugs and pornography, and those certainly fit here into escapist behaviors, but we can take that in many different other directions such as you desire to be another person. You just, you're in this kind of chaotic state in your life and you glance over or you think about somebody and how their life must be and you're just fantasizing about if I had their life, right? That's an escapist behavior to, to fit maybe 50% more of the people into, into this conversation. This includes binge watching Netflix, okay? It's an escapist behavior. Busy, 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 crazy. How do you unwind? You sit on the couch and press play and then when it auto-plays the next episode, nine seconds later, you just let that thing run, baby, and off you go. Escapist behavior, y'all. Seven, disconnected from our identity and calling. Going through the motions in, in the work, in, in the things, in the, the, the things we have to get done. Yes, going through the motions, getting those things done, but disconnected from a true sense of who we are and what God is calling us to do. There's just this disconnect of who Jesus is in my life, um, who he is and how that shapes everything and what God's calling me to do in this time and place. We're just disconnected from that identity and calling peace. We're just going about the labors. Eight, not able to attend to human needs, these kind of basic human needs like drinking enough water, eating healthy, exercising, getting eight hours of sleep a night. Yes. Not able to attend human needs includes things like shortchanging relationships with family and friends. Those are basic human, right, things that we do, needs that we all have to actually have these deep, connected relationships with friends and families, not able to do it. Nine, hoarding energy, meaning that, that, that you get to this point where you're so on fumes that, that you withdraw from people and situations out of fear that they might require the little energy you have left. So you've only got a, you, you feel like you have no margin. So, so in anticipating that somebody might ask something of you or that by, by engaging with them, it might use up the little energy you have left. You start to just completely disengage. It's hoarding energy because you feel like you have nothing left to give. It's a sign that you are functioning beyond human limitations. The last one, 10, slippage in spiritual practices. In other words, there is no discipline in your spiritual disciplines. Why are we so busy? 
why are we so tired? I mean, wasn't technology supposed to fix this for us? Wasn't it? Like, I thought technology was just going to make everything easier, everything automated, and the only question we'd have is, what do we do with all our leisure time? But why isn't that the case? Economist John Maynard Keynes wrote an essay in 1930 titled, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. In it, he famously predicted, in 1930, he famously predicted that by the time his grandchildren reached the age of employment, they would work 15-hour work weeks. That would be either all day Monday, Tuesday with five days off or three hours a day. I mean, whichever they chose. And he added, and probably only by choice. Because he was seeing technological advancements back in 1930. He was like, my grandchildren are just going to be hanging out. That was his prediction. Well, NPR, National Public Radio, caught up with a couple of his grandchildren recently who are, who are at the end, like already at the end of their careers. One worked 50-hour work weeks and struggled to ever take time off. It was never a question of what do I do with my leisure time. It was like, I feel guilty about even having leisure time. Worked 50-hour work weeks and just never felt like they could take time off. The other worked, not 15-hour weeks. The other worked 15-hour days as a professor from just after breakfast to just before bed every single day. Not the 15-hour work week. His grandson was working the 15-hour work day. See, here's the thing about technology and this, uh, this concept that, that, that generations keep falling for about it. It's going to make life simple. It's going to make life easy. So let me give you an example. Like, think about the Industrial Revolution. It started just to build things in incredible ways, and the production was great. But, but even in the start of all of that, you know, you're... Let me do a little improvisation. Let me just do a little scene here for you. I'm wearing my tool belt. Try and picture it. It's going to be tough. Picture me in a tool belt. There you go. All right. Got a hammer here. I got um, a bunch of nails here. And here's what typically we needed to do is you grab the nail, you grab the hammer, and you hammer that thing in. And you go down the line a little bit. You find another nail and you hammer that thing in, right? And you find another one. Oh, that's the wrong size. No, not that. There it is. And you find that you hammer that in and you just keep going down the line, right? I, I'm doing this kind of at real time, like, right, like, just like that. But then the invention of the nail gun and an air compressor. And now we're working on these buildings and we've got a nail gun. It's just like pop, 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 pop. And you're, you're moving on to the next thing. Like things just got 10 times faster by this invention and this new thing on the job site. And so the concept we have about technology is what? Well, if we build it 10 times faster, what are we going to do with all that time that we've saved? Let me ask you another question. What do you do with all, what do we have, what have we done with all the time we've saved? We can build a building 10 times faster. So let's build 10 then. And so we're still working hard, but now at a frenetic pace. Because we're not just working on the one building at a pace of nail and hammer and kind of going at the pace that we're... We're going at frenetic speed with the tools that we have and production rates are soaring and we're still exhausted. So how in this kind of a culture, in this kind of a time, knowing this about ourselves and that many of us are irritable and tired and needing rest, where do we go from here? Well, let's start with Jesus. Let's start in the Word. Let's hear what He's calling us to. 
And I want to do that this morning from Matthew chapter 11, because I believe Jesus speaks directly into this here. Verse 28, here's what he says. This is the first uh, book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I hear two really clear invitations to rest in the text we just read. I'll give them to you now and then we'll work through them. Anybody want an invitation for a tired person? Jesus has two here for you this morning. Here's the first. Rest that comes through trust in Jesus for salvation. Come to me, Jesus says. All you who are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come to me. That's an invitation to rest that comes through trust in Jesus for salvation. Second, rest that comes through following the way of Jesus. Jesus goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. So we're supposed to take something on. We're supposed to learn in that second one. Rest that comes through following the way of Jesus. Let's look at the first one. The first invitation for tired people. Rest that comes through trust in Jesus for salvation. Eugene's, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 is, Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Now, why did he say that? Why did he say burned out on religion in the middle of this verse. Jesus just said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase is, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Why did he say that? Well, context is everything, isn't it? The first century Jewish context that Jesus is speaking to is really important for us to understand. The gospel writer Matthew and his letter is really important for us to understand. And then these verses around other verses in their context are important for us to understand. And Eugene Peterson gets this precisely right because the direct context that Jesus has in mind is the burden of the law of Moses that the people found crippling. And it wasn't just the law itself. It was the way in which it was being taught by the scribes and Pharisees. In Psalm 19, verse 7, it actually says of the law, the psalmist writes, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So it's not an inherently bad thing or weighty thing that actually kills you. It revives the soul. But at this time, the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day were weighing the people down with the law in a way that they couldn't handle. It was a burden too heavy to bear. Matthew, or Jesus addresses this in Matthew 23 when he says about the scribes and Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They're calling people to such weightiness and keeping of the law that it's impossible for them to keep. They feel awful. They feel horrible. They feel like God doesn't love. All of these things are being put on the backs of tired people who just cannot stand up under the weight. 
In Acts chapter 15, verse 10, the Apostle Peter says precisely the same thing about the early church, about Gentile believers and these Jewish Christians coming along trying to put the weight of the law on top of them. And Peter comes along and says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Here, what he's referring to when he's talking about a yoke is a reference to the law. Why are you putting God to the test by trying to put the weight of the law of Moses on their shoulders. Nobody's been able to stand up under it but one. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, Jesus' yoke is easy and brings rest through simple commitment to him. The call of Jesus here isn't to the law, but to himself. Come to me, all you who are weary, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. This line, come to me, all you who are weary. You need to hear this. This is the opposite of every other religion, every other faith belief system. Every other faith says, fix yourself, then you're worthy to come. Make yourself righteous, and then you can come. Not so with Jesus. In the Christian church, we believe that Jesus is our righteousness. And unlike any other faith tradition, Jesus, who is our righteousness, invites us to come. Are you empty? Are you depressed? No other religion makes this kind of invitation as dysfunctional, as broken as you and I are. Jesus says, come, come as you are. And you need to get this as you are now. Jesus says, come. Timothy Keller said, the world says perform. Jesus says rest. How is it that the world says perform? Every other religion says perform. How is it that Jesus can come along and unlike anything else, just say rest? How is it? Well, the reality is because Jesus already performed. <laughs> Nobody needs to get crushed under the law. Jesus kept it perfectly. Nobody needs to get crushed under their sin. Jesus was crushed on the cross. He died sacrificially. And when Jesus comes along and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. What he's saying is, take my righteousness that I already have accomplished upon yourself. It means you get to just come. You don't need to clean up a thing yet. You don't need to worry about what's going on in your life that you need to fix before coming. You just get to come because as you come and receive Jesus, you're, you get to take on his righteousness. So it's just, yeah, I'll take that. I'll run to the front. I'll do that. This is the invitation to trust in Jesus for salvation before you've done a single thing to better yourself. Look, everything's merit-based in this world except for the grace of God in the gospel. You're not worthy. Jesus says, come. You're not good enough. Jesus says, come. You haven't sort out that glaring, that, that glaring area of sin. 
Jesus says, come. You, the broken relationships in your life have not been fixed yet. It's okay. You don't have to fix them first. Jesus says, come. One of my favorite lines of one of my favorite songs says, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. In other words, if you wait till you fix yourself, you're never coming to Jesus. And you don't have to. If you feel like Christians have told you that story, if churches have have talked that way, I'm sorry. It's just not the case. Jesus doesn't say, fix yourself, then come. Jesus says, come, and I will mend you, and you will be fixed, and you will be made whole. Come first, and let Jesus change you. James Montgomery Boyce wrote it this way, Jesus is the only rest you or any other poor, struggling, burdened soul will ever need. All we need to do is acknowledge we have need, acknowledge that we're poor and we need the riches of Christ. All we need to do is acknowledge that and come. From there, he goes on to say, you may be laboring onward like pilgrim. That's a reference to Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. He says, you may be laboring onward like pilgrim, distressed at the burden on your back. No earthly master will lift that burden. Many will add to it. The majority will ignore it because they have burdens of their own. You need Jesus. He's the only one who can actually help you. Why not turn to him right now? Turn from all inferior teachers to the one who alone can teach true godliness and whose teaching will save your soul. I want to give you an invitation this morning to come and to rest in Jesus Christ. It's an invitation to stop striving in order to earn it, in order to merit righteousness, salvation. Jesus says, come to stop striving. Are you in need? Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to Jesus. Turn to him in faith. Now, many of you have done that and we're still really tired and still really burdened. So what does the, do these verses mean? Well, Jesus, again, like I said, that rest we just spoke about is not being weighed down by religious burdens of having to earn it for yourself, but to recognize that Jesus has earned it and offers you his righteousness, which instantly lets us rest and instantly takes a weight off of our shoulders. That is offered. Many of you have received that invitation from Jesus, but there is a second invitation here. Rest that comes through following the way of Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take something of mine on and then, and then learn my ways. I'm going to teach you how to live, and it's also going to bring you rest. Has anybody here heard of hurry sickness? Hurry sickness. Recent, recently, uh, I, I read about this, and it's defined as a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, an overwhelming and continual sense of urgency. I'm going to try and help you find, here's some clues. I'm going to give you some clues that you may be suffering from hurry sickness. And then maybe some of the doctors in the congregation could give us sick notes, hurry sickness, sick notes or something. I don't know. But Rosemary Sword and Philip Zimbardo share some clues that you suffer from hurry sickness. Here's one, moving from one checkout line to another because it looks shorter or faster. Man, does shopping at Costco not stress you out? 
You're like, really? The lines to the granola bars? Are we doing this? Which one? There's got to be one that's shorter, and I will push over this lady here if I need to, to get to it. I would never. I would not. Here's another clue. Counting the cars in front of you and either getting in the lane that has the least or the one that's going the fastest. You may be suffering from hurry sickness. Third, multitasking to the point of forgetting one of the tasks. You're at your computer. You're playing some music on your computer. You're composing an email, but you've also been working on a document there as well. And then you get a text and you start texting. You're doing all of these things and eventually you forget to ever send the email. Multitasking to the point of forgetting one of the tasks. You may be suffering from hurry sickness. Another one is accidentally putting your clothes on inside out or backwards. I just included that one so you wouldn't feel so bad about getting 75% instead of 100% on that. Except for the few of you that actually put your clothes on backwards this last week and now you just feel terrible. You may be suffering from, well, you are suffering from hurry sickness if that's you. I just realized right now, these pants are back. Why are my, why is my wallet right here in a back pocket? That's strange. All right. How you did up the zipper, who knows? Okay, um, Michael Zigarelli uh, from Charleston School of Business conducted a survey of 20,009 Christians across 139 countries. Nearly 1,000 of the Christians that he surveyed were from Canada. And in the survey, it identified busyness as the major distraction from life with God. Now, right, what I'm talking about here is a rest that Jesus offers that comes through following the way of Jesus. What is, though, identified uh, as the greatest distraction from life with God? The busyness we are all so immersed in. He said, among the primary obstacles to walking as Jesus did is today's frenetic pace of life. Busyness, hurry, overload, burnout, overextension. It's known by many names, but there's one common outcome. The accelerated pace and activity level of the modern day distracts us from God and separates us from the abundant, joyful, victorious life he desires for us. In the summary of his survey of 20,009 Christians, nearly a thousand of which were from Canada, he summarizes it this way. I think the problem may be described as a vicious cycle prompted by cultural conformity. This is so spot on. Listen to this. In particular, it may be the case that one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. Which leads to two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. And that is the cycle. And then the cycle begins again. Slowly but inexorably, many Christians have been brainwashed into adopting a life, a way of life that relegates God to the periphery, he summarizes. In other words... We are so convinced that the way our culture is doing life is just the way we do life that we're not even for a second questioning the pace of life. We're just adopting it. And then we're trying to fit God into it. And then we're also critiquing God from the little that we're actually immersed in 
knowing him, walking with him, growing in him. And so we're rarely questioning the worldview by which we just assume a life and culture of busyness. We just assume you check social media constantly and let it distract you from everything. When was the last time you evaluated the fact that social media gets to invade your life and have that kind of priority? When's the last time you engaged social media content and the use and the regularity, the frequency, the interruption, the disruption that it causes in the life and said, do I love this more than Jesus? Am I giving this more time than Jesus? Am I finding my meaning in what people think about my posts more than in Christ? Like, are, are we evaluating what the culture is doing at all? Because Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We need to grapple with these things. The iPhone came out in 2007. So it's celebrating a decade. We've been celebrating, we're celebrating, celebrating a decade of the smartphone. It's only been 10 years. Yet it's transformed the way we get information and spend our time. As of 2016, 76% of Canadians own a smartphone. I think it was 52% in 2014. Two years later, it's 76% of Canadians own a smartphone. The average millennial, which is like 18 to 35-ish, if, if that's the case, I get to fit in. So let's say 18 to 35, us millennials, uh, average 3.2 hours per day on their mobile devices. Do you know what that is in a week? That's a day a week. Millennials spend one day per week on their mobile device. I mean, the Sabbath, that's legalistic. I spend my day a week on, so it's crazy. The majority of that time is spent on social media. A 2014 survey of uh, 28,000 Canadian smartphone owners estimate they spend an average of nearly 90% of their free time staring at one of the many screens they own. In other words, let me translate it this way. On average... In Canada, Canadians only spend 14% of their free time not looking at a screen. Only 14% of our free time is not staring in to the black hole of the internet or movies or shows or information about, you know, whatever. We are addicted, I would say. Psychologists have made the point that the vast majority of Canadians' relationship to their phones falls under the category of compulsion. We have to check that last text. You ever gotten a text when your phone is across the room? Do you not almost instantaneously get up and just, I go now? <laughs> like, why? I don't know. That's just because it's compulsion. That's why. Because we're addicts. Here's a, here's, a, here's a popular definition of addiction. Addiction is the relentless pull to a substance or an activity that becomes so compulsive that it ultimately interferes with everyday life. By that definition, nearly everyone we know is addicted to their phone or the internet or both. You don't think that's you? Well, then you're one of the 24% of Canadians that don't own a smartphone. Well done or you're lying. And if you don't think you're addicted to your phone, yet you have a smartphone, I want to invite you right now, literally, I want to invite you right now to turn it off and not turn it on for 24 hours. And think about this one word in the next 24 hours, 
compulsion. How often are you going to think, I should turn it on, just check. I'm wondering what, what my phone says in my office right now. Like, I, I, I leave it in there and I, I'm going to check it after. A New York Times article called Addiction to the Internet the most socially sanctioned addiction. We just accept it. Yeah, we're addicted, but it's fine. It's culturally acceptable, so it's okay, right? Look, I, I'm not trying to make a... a, a rag on social media. I'm not trying to rag on smartphones. I'm just using it as one example in our time of the fact that makes, it makes us so busy doing that we've lost the ability to learn the art of being. We're so busy being distracted that we lack intentionality in our discipleship to Jesus, right? Oh, look, another email. Have to check it. Um, I've started to see posters around town about uh, the Leap of Faith, the Cyrus Center. We partner with them and support them financially. A lot of you serve at the Cyrus Center in town. They do great ministry. A couple years ago, I jumped out of a plane with a parachute, praise the Lord, for the Leap of Faith. We raised some funds, and many of you were a part of that, and uh, jumped out of a plane two years ago to do that. They're doing that again next month. Um, it's the only situation I can think of where I'd willingly be tethered to a man on my, who's on my back, right? Like I can't think of no other scenario where I would be cool with that. Uh, well, Heimlich maneuver, I guess. There, by all means, man, just come on back. Like, hell, uh, like Heimlich maneuver and jumping out of a plane, right? Because when you're, when you're new to skydiving, you don't actually even wear a parachute. The guy strapped to your back is wearing the parachute. It's going off his back. So you'd better be tethered to that guy. It's that kind of a scenario. And so I was, and um, he, was, he would tell me what to do. Okay, you're going to roll out of the plane, and you're going to kind of, kind of go out and spread your arms out. And, and he's Austra Australian accent. They're always Australian, these guys. And, uh, and he's just telling me what to do and how to do it. And he's you're going to want to pull the cord. I'll tell you when to pull the cord. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to pull that cord. You bet. Uh, and so really neat experience. Jesus says in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A, a yoke was, was a, a wooden instrument that would couple animals together, like oxen or donkeys, to pull something like a plow or a cart, and to be yoked together was to, uh, these beasts of burden would bear the load together. And so what Jesus is saying, man, be tethered to me. I will be right there. And me, my ways, my teaching, walking with me, I will be telling you the way to live, the way to go about the rhythms of your life. Jesus is inviting us to take off the yoke of slavery and not do away with yokes altogether, but be yoked to Jesus, to be yoked together with him. Like the yoke that couples oxen together, discipleship does not exempt one from work, but makes it manageable. In the New Testament, yoke is always used metaphorically and signifies bondage or submission to authority of some kind, meaning we never leave submission. We leave submission to a, a yoke of slavery that burdens us down, weighs us down, and is too heavy to bear. And then we're told to be yoked to Jesus, which is submission to Christ and his ways. We don't do away with the yoke at all. Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, notes this when he says, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what, what, what we might, what, wow, what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. 
But listen to this. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. See, when you give your life to Jesus, you're th- that the burdens that you bear, the guilt and the shame, you get Christ's righteousness and instantly you get rest. But also in this instance, you have to keep living life. You're not void of all of the challenges and obstacles and sufferings that come our way in this life. They still come. And so Jesus is saying, beyond salvation, be yoked to me. And where where your rest will come from is in walking with me in a way of approaching it. See, the rest offered by Jesus isn't work-free rest. Read the Sermon on the Mount. All Jesus does is up the expectations in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, and it's like more and it's bigger. So it's not like he's, he's telling us not to work. It's not the rest offered by Jesus isn't work-free rest, but it's one work that is refreshing and good and it brings about salvation and therefore is light. It's the kind of work that makes us glad and we will find delight in. And two, it is work that we are not called to accomplish on our own, but through the strength Jesus provides through the Holy Spirit. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I will actually help you as you learn my way of life that's gentle, that's humble, right? You will find rest for your souls. Learn from me, he says. The, the definition of disciple is learner. A disciple learns. A, a, a disciple is a student. They're a learner. And Jesus is saying here, learn from me. He's talking about being a disciple of Jesus. Learn from me. John Mark Comer wrote, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, You have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. The way of Jesus is just that, a way of living. It's not just a code of ethics and set of religious beliefs that you adhere to. I believe these things. Jesus is the Christ. Yes and amen, all of those things. But it's also a lifestyle taking on Jesus. And he doesn't call us to take on Jesus alone in some sort of guilt-ridden, heavy burden way. He wants to take it on with us and empower us by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you some examples of Jesus' way of living. Jesus was called by Jairus, a really important leader in Jesus' day, to, to quickly come to his house to heal his daughter who was dying. And so Jesus agrees. And I bet the disciples at this point are just like, man, this is awesome. Jairus is really important. And we get to go with Jesus. He's going to heal this. It's going to be amazing. So they're just like charging ahead towards Jairus' house. And they're bringing Jesus with. And yet there's a big crowd because Jesus is this miracle worker. He's this healer. He's this great teacher. And crowds were constantly flooding around Jesus. And that was the case here. So Jesus is going to heal Jairus's daughter, but on the way he stops and like, who touched me? He just stops. They're going somewhere important. A girl is dying. He stops. Who's touching me? Like it's, have you ever gone out of like a sporting event or a concert where you're with like 20,000 people and you're leaving the arena? It would be really weird to be in the lobby and be like, who brushed my shoulder? Like you're in a, you're in a crowd of thousands. And so Jesus is that kind of scenario. Like who touched me? And the disciples are like, are you serious? Like everybody, like we're all, 
And she, he looks, and he takes the time to discover that there was a woman who touched him, and she was instantly healed from bleeding that she had had for years and years. And he still stops, he still waits, and he starts to dialogue with her. Can you just imagine the disciples and all the people that are wanting him just to get to Jairus' house? Like, really? What are you doing, Jesus? And yet this is the way of Jesus. I remember when I lived in, uh, my wife and I lived in Vancouver for a little while in a really sketchy little, little part of East Vancouver uh, for a quick cup of coffee there. And um, I remember early one morning going out to my car and there was a homeless man who had just woken up and was, had been sleeping beside my car and he asked if I had anything that he could have. And I said, no, I don't, sorry. And I hopped in my car because I had to get to an early morning men's Bible study, right? I had to get to that. That's really important. And and 6 a.m. So I had to be there at 6 a.m. So I got in my car. I said, sorry, I don't have anything. And I went. And of course, at this men's Bible study, I probably learned about the great commandment, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And I really needed, obviously, to learn that. And so I headed off quickly to that. That's not the way of Jesus. He stopped for the one in need and let his schedule just get set aside. I recognize we can't do that all the time. But there's a way and a rhythm of life that allows for those opportunities to bless and to love and to serve. Jesus would regularly have crowds gathered around them, and it says in the Gospels he would dismiss them, like in Matthew 14, so that he could go off by himself to pray. So thousands of people are hanging on every word, and people are getting healed, and more sick people are coming to him, and he just draws a line and says, we're done. God bless you. I don't you know. And, I bless you, <laughs> and, uh, and, and off you go. Like he would just disperse the crowds. I need to go be alone for myself and be with the Father. Same thing happened in such a way where he felt like he was going to get trampled uh, by the crowd. It was so much so he got into a, a, a boat of one of the fishermen of, uh, that, that they had there and, and could set out. And at one point, he just wanted to escape by the water on the Sea of Galilee, just go to another place. The crowds had been so full. That's so different than our thinking, is it not? Thousands of people have gathered to here. Let's build a mega church, like right here, right now. Like, and let's start some, like, let's just start processes and get this thing going. Like everybody, like, Jesus is like, all right, I'm done. I'm done. Thank you, thousands. And off he would go because he wasn't willing to neglect these rhythms of life, it is, I, I'm retreating now. I, I'm resting now. I'm going to be with the Father now and to commune with Him. We need to not feel guilty about that. We are to learn from this way, this lifestyle. First John 2, 6, John says, Whoever says he abides in Him, that's Jesus, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We need to ruthlessly evaluate our walk with Jesus. And does it look at all like the rhythms of his life? We need to look at the rest that comes through following the way of Jesus and evaluate that. I've been doing just really recently some ruthless evaluation of my time. God has blessed us with an exceptional executive pastor in Ron Van Acker, and and that frees up some of the areas that I've been giving time to, to not have to. But I know that this is a critical moment for me, for my sustainability, for my wellness, because if I don't guard times, I'm just going to fill them with the useless and just the crazy and all the things that come up at any given moment, and I will just be a slave to those things. And so one of the things I'm doing is I've just gotten out a calendar of a week, like Monday to Sunday, and 
I, I, I'm just putting in the blocks, the things, the, the, the kinds of meetings and the routines that I, I need to do. I drive the boys to school at this time, this time, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be at these meetings at these times, and my calendar begins to get filled. I need to give myself to study at this time, this block, and this block, kind of morning, afternoon, evening, and I'm just starting to set up the calendar that way. Then I'm bringing in things that I need, that need to be non-negotiable, but at this point are exercise. I, I need to relearn what exercise is again. And so I'm, I'm putting in from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. on Tuesday, I will walk the dog and I will give that time to walking and praying. On Saturday afternoon, Lord help me, I'm going to go to the gym. Um, right? And on this other time, I'm, just, I'm locking in three like good times of exercise and they're blocked in. If, if somebody will then ask me, hey, Matt, can you meet with me at this time? Sorry, I can't. I have an engagement I need to be at. It's me walking the dog, perhaps, but I have an engagement I've got to be at. So, like, right, and so those are locked in. Right now, so much of my schedule, I, it's my own doing. I've kept so nebulous that I'm a slave to the craziness that is life, and it happens to me. And I want to invite you maybe to do the same, to get out a calendar to look at the invitation to rest that Jesus has offered here, his way of living, his lifestyle, and say, I want to spend good quality times with Jesus. Just prayer and the word, being with the Lord. Maybe this, day, this time at this place, I'll be out in nature. Maybe in this place here, I'll just be at the early morning at the dining room table. That'll just me and Jesus. Whatever it is, you, like we just create those and say, Lord, we give you our time. We give you our week Disciple us in it. And Lord, would we find healthy rhythms? And by your grace, would we find deep soul rest in the midst of a frantic, busy, 24 hours a day culture? We need this. Dallas Willard called hurry the great enemy of the spiritual life. To be a disciple of Jesus is to learn not only his moral teaching, but also his way of life. To take his yoke upon us, his ways, his rhythms. Let's ruthlessly evaluate our lives for addictions, for hurry sickness, for everything that distracts us from following the way of Jesus and yoke ourselves to him. Let's learn from him, grow in him, and find our real delightful rest in him. I'd like to close this morning by reading a paraphrase from Eugene Peterson of this text, and then we'll respond with, with one song. Here's what it says in Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest, Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Amen.